Hey, my friend, welcome along to the Medicinal Chef's Nutrition Nuggets podcast, helping you get clarity on nutrition. I'm Dale Pinnock, the Medicinal Chef, best-selling author, nutritionist, and creator of Nutrition Coaching Monthly. Every week here in the podcast, I'm going to be answering your questions and discussing key topics around the field of nutrition to help give you clarity and to expand your knowledge. Hey folks, how you doing? Hope you guys are well and welcome to this week's podcast. Now, this week's session is about something that I've been asked about so many times. I've had this question over and over and over again, whether it's from you guys contacting me directly um, for the podcast, people within my Diet Another Day program, people that are part of my diploma in culinary medicine. Everyone seems to want to know about this because it's something that the press have been covering quite a lot. It's something that's very, very topical and very popular in the, the wellness movement in the minute. And I have to be honest, it's something that I practice myself too. And that is intermittent fasting. I'm quite the fan of intermittent fasting. I've been doing it for around about two years almost and I have to admit I've personally experienced some really really great results from it. What I've experienced from it personally is I find it very very easy to stay lean when I actually follow that. Being a 42 year old guy it's not always easy. Trust me you have to work that little bit harder to kind of stay stay looking trim and staying on top of things. Obviously the exercise bit is is fundamental there but it really comes down to nutrition. We go through hormonal changes and metabolic changes as we evolve through life. And I find it a really useful tool in just helping to, to, to keep lean and, and, and keep in good shape. I also find that I get a really good, clear-headed state when I practice intermittent fasting. Only if I, I don't do it every day. I mean, we'll get onto that in a minute. But when I kind of mix it up, like some days eating normally, other days going into the, the fasting spot, I find that I really do have an enhanced cognitive function, really. I definitely find that it makes a difference to my clarity of thinking, my mental acuity, my my mental stamina as well, because, I mean, my, my work now, it's absolutely mental. It can really, really take its toll on your brain and on your kind of mental energy sometimes if you allow it to. I find that with intermittent fasting, I'm in the zone a lot more. And also I found that when I do a morning workout in a fasted state that I can actually I actually have much better strength, much better endurance in the gym, much better performance. Cardio can sometimes suffer a little, but certainly with with strength-based exercise, I really do tend to get better results when I'm in that fasted state than if I'd had breakfast before I actually went to the gym. So the way that I do it, I, I practice it. Uh, what they call 16-8, okay? So you've got 16 fasted hours a day and eight hours of eating, like an eight-hour eating window. The easiest way to do that is just skip breakfast. Now, I don't do this every day. I mean, I love breakfast. I absolutely love breakfast. Uh, one of my one of my favorite things, you know, uh, you, you've probably seen my, my posts on, on social media over the years. I do love breakfast. But a couple of times a week, two to three times a week, I'll skip breakfast and have my first meal at like 11 or 12. And that basically gives you that 16-hour window where you're not 
consuming any food and you're moving into that fasting state. So that's what I do. Let me talk about some of the actual benefits that have been documented, okay? There's all sorts of weird and wonderful claims and I would advise, like anything else, when you when you see these claims that maybe do seem a little far-fetched, absolutely take them with a pinch of salt. But it's something that's been very well researched. A lot of this research started off at the, um, at the UCLA, by Professor Cynthia Kenyon, I think, was the person that actually pioneered it. She certainly, she certainly was a real voice within, within the research. She did a lot of work with worms, actually, like caloric restriction on worms and saw some of the, the metabolic changes that they went through. One of the things we know, when you go into that fasted state, you will soon start to tap into fatty acids as a fuel source in a similar way that you would if you were following a ketogenic diet. Now, when we uh, when we consume in all of the food groups, I mean, you know, I can I consume everything. I, I don't necessarily think we need to go and do Atkins things like that. But you guys know I am a proponent of a very very low glycemic diet. I definitely don't recommend going near huge amounts of starchy carbohydrates or consuming any, if possible, of the refined carbohydrates, white bread, white rice, white pasta, sugary drinks, all of that kind of rubbish. But you know, a good broad whole foods diet is what I've always been a proponent of. Now. When our blood glucose goes up, a certain amount is utilized straight away. So blood glucose will rise and our body responds by secreting the hormone insulin. Insulin will bind to an insulin receptor on the cell surface. Then once it binds to that receptor, it tells the cell to open a gate, which is called a glucose transporter. That allows glucose to come in. And that glucose is used in the cell to manufacture ATP, adenosine triphosphate, which is the energy currency that our cells run on. Okay, so basically little stored units of energy, little lightning bolts, adenosine triphosphate. Now, that all works perfectly, but our cells do have a cutoff point because glucose does have the potential to be toxic in any situation if it's too high. So to avoid glucotoxicity within the cell, which can lead to increased oxidative stress within that cell, the cells have a cutoff point. Once they've taken enough, once they've had enough for that one sitting, they will close the door and then any additional glucose. Usually, if you're following, if you're following a good low glycemic diet, this whole response will be very, very gentle and very, very subtle. Any remaining glucose that is beyond the kind of um, homeostatic norm that the body will actually want to stay within. Because obviously blood sugar that's too high or that's too low can both, both states are potentially problematic. So the body will want to stay within very, very tight parameters. It won't want to go too high. It won't want to go too low. So if there's any additional beyond that, that kind of stable state, any additional that's left over will be stored in the form of glycogen. Glycogen will be a storage form of the carbohydrate that's stored within skeletal muscle and within the liver. Now, when we're, doing, when we're practicing this intermittent fasting, the first maybe hour or so, we're going to be running on glycogen. So because we're not going to be consuming any food, we're not going to be taking in any source of glucose. So our body's just going to go towards our reserves our reserves being glycogen. Now, depending on what your diet and activity and all, and all the rest of it is like, that will influence how much glycogen you've actually got in storage. But once you've tapped into this, you'll use it for a little while and then it will be used up. Now, at first, when you first start doing this, this might make you, make you feel a little bit lightheaded, you'll feel hungry, you might feel a little bit away with the fairies. 
but your body will soon switch over. It's like, right, okay, what we need fuel. We absolutely need fuel. What's our next available fuel source that we have? It's fatty acids. Now, to go back to this, this whole thing, as I said, um, you know, blood sugar that's too high or too low. One of the main things that the body fat is, body fat is a, is a storage form of energy, essentially. Now, the, it's stored in the form of triglycerides, triglycerides that enter the adipocytes, the fat cells, and are stored for a rainy day. An example of this, if we're eating a very, very carb-heavy diet, a very, very high glycemic diet, um, blood sugar goes too high for too long, once our cells are full, the cells close the door on um, any additional glucose coming in, and our glycogen stores are fully topped up, because we, there's only so much glycogen that we can store, then any additional glucose that's in circulation above that standard that the body wants will be sent to the liver. And then it will, it will be converted into something called triacylglycerol, otherwise known as triglycerides, that then are sent via the circulation to the adipose tissue to be saved for a rainy day. This is just hardwired in our DNA. This is how we've operated through most of our evolution as a species. We had times of feast and famine, so we are geared towards that. The problem is nowadays we just don't get any famine. This is practicing a little bit of that famine, okay? Intermittent fasting is that little bit of that famine state. Now, once the glycogen's been used, the body will soon switch over into actually utilizing these stored triglycerides as an energy source. They will take them out of the adipocytes and take them in, in, into circulation and can then start feeding the mitochondria within the cells with these triglycerides to use as an energy source. We start to burn body fat. So that's benefit number one, is we actually tap into fat stores and can use our body fat stores as a fuel source. So that's why it's a great technique to, to helping you to stay lean, okay? And this is, you know, I, I'm gonna do a, a whole series around this, around the whole thing about the, the, the calorie model. The calorie model is nonsense. And that's as much as I'm gonna say in this particular session for the simple reason that it, it's, it's such a can of worms, we'll be here for hours. But the whole calories in, calories out stuff is just nonsensical when we're talking about a biological system, okay? We are a biological system, not a combustion engine. That's it for now. But, so regardless of, of calories, when you've got that, that, that kind of window where you're not supplying any fuel, you're gonna tap into triglycerides as a fuel source. So benefit number one is it's a good way to tap into fat stores over time. Number two, quite, quite interesting, we found that intermittent fasting or caloric restriction in general, so eating a diet that's, that's very nutrient dense, but not necessarily, not necessarily sort of calorie dense. And this isn't the calories in, calories out, by the way. This is a whole different can of worms as well. Have basically been shown to, act, to activate caloric restriction, intermittent fasting, fasting periods have been shown to activate the activity of sirtuins. Now, sirtuins are a family of seven different proteins that work in different areas within our cells. They're, they're, they're proteins that can protect our cells from damage. And one of the ways that they do this is, they. I'm not gonna go massively into biochemistry because most of you just don't care about that. You just wanna know what to do 
breakfast, lunch, and dinner, okay? But for, for those that want to know a little bit more, the sirtuins, one of the main things they do is they remove acetyl groups from certain proteins. Now, the other proteins, like, you know, some of the proteins on DNA, that kind of stuff, that have certain jobs to do in the cell, whilst they've been doing their job, will leave themselves a little bit exposed. You know, as they're performing their duties, they can leave themselves a little bit exposed. But they've got a way of identifying the fact that they're potentially exposed. They display this acetyl group on their surface. And sirtuins can identify the acetyl group, remove it. When the acetyl group is removed, these proteins are much less vulnerable to damage. So one of the things that sirtuins can do is protect our DNA from damage. Also, other key structures that might be there within the mitochondria or within other organelles. There's, I mean, it's, uh, two good friends of mine, Glenn Matten and Aidan Goggins. They've written a great book, like the, the, the Cert Food Diet, which was doing the rounds a couple of years ago. They really go into a lot of detail about sirtuins. These things are fantastic and worth worth looking into. We've found that you know these prolonged fasting periods can raise sirtuin um, levels and activity as well. Then the final thing that really seems to be coming up time and time again in, in the research, at least, like I say, these are things that are, that are certainly supported by research. You will see a whole manner of other claims out there, but maybe forget about those for now. Is aut autophagy, autophagy, however you want to pronounce it. I haven't got a Scooby. I'm not really that bothered. Autophagy. Okay, let's let's just say autophagy for now. If you want to call it autophagy, you crack on. Right. This is basically the process where our body will remove old, unhealthy, damaged structures and proteins and organelles and things from our cells in order to make way for new ones. It's something that's, again, it's hardwired into our body. It's something our body does all the time. But some aspects of our modern lifestyle can actually slow down that process and, and inhibit aspects of that process. Intermittent fasting does seem to accelerate autophagy, autophagy, whatever it is. This is a key fundamental to aging and long-term tissue damage. So it does seem that, you know, from the activity of sirtuins, from the increase in autophagy, that intermittent fasting can be a very, very valuable anti-aging tool. You know, certainly in terms of um, things like telomere length, we've seen that, that practicing intermittent fasting can influence telomere length, which is a sign of, you know, our, our rate of biological aging. We see that there's less inflammatory damage, all of these kinds of things, all of these kind of things that are, that are cropping up in the research. So that is my take on it. I practice it. I, I do it two to three times a week. I will do a 16-8 a day where I just basically don't start eating until, until 12 and get on great with it. Give it a try. See how you get on. Now, before I go, I just want to take a listener question, which, by the way, if you guys have a question for me here in the podcast, send me an email, dale at themedicinalchef.co.uk. Send me an email and I will answer your question. So, right, where's it gone? I had it a second ago. 
that's the thing. When email comes in at a million miles an hour, it's, ah, here we go. So this is from Linda. Linda is saying, um, I'm undertaking your culinary medicine course and really enjoyed it so far. Awesome. I'll tell you guys about that at the end. As I have metabolic syndrome, I've already learned a fair amount about how insulin carrying glucose is blocked from entering the cells. Um, I have to say that cutting out carbs, other than those in veg, has made a massive difference to my weight and energy. But what I don't understand is how are the carbs then processed from the veg if they turn into glucose too, albeit slowly. If I'm insulin resistant, surely they are blocked too. I have tons more energy, so I'm getting it from somewhere, the fat I'm storing, I presume. I just can't seem to find out what is happening to the veg in carbs. The, I think to the veg carbs. Sorry, God, I need to put my glasses on. Now, basically what Linda's saying here is like, okay, so eating a diet that is cutting out these very, very starch-heavy, very high glycemic carbohydrates and instead building it around non-starchy vegetables, good quality fats and good quality proteins isn't having this, this kind of glycemic roller coaster that a more carb-centric diet can have. And she's saying, what's the difference? There is no difference What the difference in terms of the actual carbohydrate. The glucose that's being released is glucose. The issue is the rate and the extent to which it is released. So eating like that, Linda, is basically, it's creating a diet, it's creating a state that means your, your blood sugar is being drip-fed rather than carpet-bond. And what you're allowing is equilibrium to return, essentially. Insulin resistance often comes when insulin is being pushed up too high for too long. And it's almost like that the boy, the boy that cried wolf, the, the insulin receptors in time start to think, listen, this isn't right. You get a down-regulation of um, sensitivity by the insulin receptors. It's just the body aiming to, to achieve homeostasis because it doesn't think that there's any reason why glucose should be flooded this much. So it's like there's obviously some kind of signaling problem here. Because there's a signaling problem, we're going to adjust accordingly. So basically, if you keep your blood sugar at a healthy, stable state for long enough, the body will respond and enhance and increase insulin sensitivity again. It will find its balance. But also, as you rightly said, you're getting energy from somewhere. It's the fact that what you're experiencing is not that you've necessarily got loads more energy. You've just not got the energy roller coaster that you would have had in the past. So your your blood sugar is not going through the through the ceiling and then through the basement. You know you're actually feeling much more even. So your 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 blood sugar levels are more even, and you're experiencing that as a more stable energy level. But then also chances are you're tapping it into more body fat stores, as we spoke about at the beginning of this podcast you're tapping into more of these uh, stores of triglycerides and those will be an energy source for you as well. It's just your entire um, metabolic processes in terms of energy production and um, you know, energy maintenance is improving overall. So yeah, that's, that's it. It's not that they're any different, it's just the rate and the extent to which that glucose is released that affects that whole metabolic process. Now, Almost the end of the podcast, which leads me to say, if you are interested in nutrition, if nutrition is something that you really want to learn more about, or indeed if you actually want to launch a career in the wellness industry, 
You will have known, you know, no doubt found out by now that I have launched a diploma in culinary medicine. This is a fully accredited 100% online diploma in culinary medicine. This is basically showing you the science of using food as a therapeutic tool, how food can be a key factor in the instigation of disease, in the actual etiology of disease process, and also how food and diet can be tailored to not only prevent certain issues and ailments, but actually be a therapeutic intervention in its own right. Food can be used as medicine. This isn't about alternative medicine. This isn't about replacing drugs. This is about the one thing that people can actually do for themselves. This is a way in which people can actively engage in their own healthcare. This course helps you to get a full grounding in that science. It helps you to really, really get to grips with the evidence base, the full anatomy, physiology, biochemistry, and then take, to be able to take that information and relay that to what happens at breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It helps you to be able to create recipes and meal plans and dietary strategies for yourself, for your family, for potential clients if you wanted to actually enter the industry in a way that's going to be effective, that's going to be affordable, that's going to be achievable, that's going to be delicious. It's going to help you to do all of that. So it really is marrying these two things together, the science of nutrition and nutritional medicine with the culinary arts. It's bringing those two worlds together. It's basically doing what I do. And we're fully accredited. We're accredited by the Complementary Medical Association, the Federation of Nutritional Therapy Practitioners, and we're going through the accreditation process with BANT as well. When you graduate, you can become a member of the Complementary Medical Association. You can apply for insurance with Balins. You can get insured to start working straight away. This course is completely flexible as well. You can take eight months. You can take eight years. There's no time limits. There's no deadlines. There's no physical attendance. Work through it at your own pace. You've got a complete support network here, and you'll be in good company as well. You will join hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of students from all over the world. We literally have students from every single continent. We have every possible age range and demographic you can imagine. The youngest student is 15. The oldest student is 86. And we've, we've got them from America, from all over Europe, from Australia, from South Africa. There's people from everywhere. We've got a thriving community. You get your own private community in the program as well. It's basically like a, like a recreated Facebook type platform there within the actual course. And people are getting to know each other. We've got friendships forming. So you'll be in good company. What you need to do is head over to culinarymedicinecollege.com. That's culinarymedicinecollege.com. You can sign up to the course there, or you can even sign up to take a free mini taster course. That basically gives you an idea of how things are taught. So we've got some of the written content in there. We've got a video lesson in there. You can do an exam, like a sample exam. You can see examples of the coursework. You can get to meet your teachers that are on the course. You've got a video tour of what the full course looks like you can get a feel for everything that's going on. So head over to culinarymedicinecollege.com to get more info on that. So thank you very much for, for your time. Until next week, my friends, see you later.